We think that's wonderful, and we welcome kids in here. And so um, there are, like I said at the beginning of the service, there are bulletins there in the back that uh, they can utilize to be able to go through the service with us. And, um, and so I commend that uh, to you and to be able to use that as just a guide for discussion with your kids uh, as you guys seek to talk about Lord's Day worship together as a family. We have been going through um, our confession, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, and just reading selections from it. And over the last 10 weeks, we've been looking at what our confession says about the Holy Scriptures. And, uh, and we now turn to chapter 2, uh, paragraph 1, to begin to see what the confession says as it relates to God and the Holy Trinity. And, uh, and again, just by way of reminder, uh, the, the, the confession, think of it as a, a statement of faith, uh, one that was born in adversity, one that was written um, during the time of the Reformation, recovering um, the apostolic doctrines and the grounding of uh, the, sol- the re- selections of readings that we're going through. Uh, the grounding is uh, the scripture itself. And so this is paragraph one of chapter two of God and of the Holy Tr- Trinity. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God, whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body parts or passions, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will, for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of those that diligently seek him, and with all most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. And so that is chapter one, uh, or chapter two, paragraph one, as it relates to God and the Holy Trinity. But if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. We have been going over the last several weeks through this gospel, and we began last week looking at uh, chapter 1, uh, uh, verses 14 and 15 of Mark's gospel, and this morning we're going to continue to look uh, at verses 14 and 15, because last week we saw the significance, and we, we just kind of spent time meditating, if you will, on the significance of Christ coming to Galilee, right? If, if Jesus preached the kingdom of God in Galilee, where you would find the worst of sinners, right, the, the unlikely to be saved, if you will, then he came to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God to you and to me as well. This gospel is it's far-reaching, and it's a far-reaching, as far, uh, we sing, you know, joy to the world around Christmas time. It's, 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 it reaches as far as the curse is found, which means there's no place that it, it doesn't get into. And it's more potent, it's more powerful than our sins, whatever those sins may be. And so this is, this is good news for sinners like me and sinners 
like you. And this morning, I want to continue to just press into these two verses, and we're going to use uh, this morning's takeaways as our guide, if you will, uh, because there, there's more for us to, to see here. And so in those takeaways, you'll find in your, your worship guide. And so let me just again to kind of refresh us, let me uh, read verses 14 and 15 of Mark chapter 1. I'm going to pray, and then again, we'll use these takeaways as our guide uh, through the text this morning. And so this is John Mark documenting uh, the, the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. And he, he documents this under the inspiration of the Spirit. Uh, and, and again, he's, it's believed that he, he's pulling from what he observed in the Apostle John's ministry. And so this is, this is the Word of God. Now, after John the Baptist was, was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that we can open it. We thank you that we can trust it. We thank you that your Holy Spirit uses it even on the most callous of hearts. And God, we ask that this morning you would soften us, God, that you would warm our affections for you, Lord, that we will... Be a people that walk in joy because we walk mindful of our union with Jesus Christ. So help us this morning, and we love you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you're taking notes, and kids, if you've got your, your kids' bulletin and you can use your parents' worship guide as kind of a cheat sheet, if you will, the, the first thing that we need to see here from our text is that the gospel of God is unstoppable. The gospel of God is is unstoppable. As, as we noted last week, John's arrest is the event, according to the will of God, that propels Christ's preaching ministry publicly. Or, or rather, John's preaching ministry, it terminates, and this is probably the better way to put it, John's preaching ministry terminates in the coming of God, the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Christ. Again, some scholars, and I made note of this last week, some scholars believe that uh, John and Jesus were perhaps doing ministry together, which is one of the reasons for the inclusion, even in, in something as brief as Mark's gospel here, the reason for the inclusion of John's arrest before it gets to the preaching ministry uh, of Jesus Christ. But either way, what I want us to see is that John's arrest, really underneath it, it was a, it was a spiritual attack of sorts. Okay, if we're, you know, we can think about it that way, and many of you kind of know the, the circumstances, and we'll revisit it. I'm not going to get into it here this morning, but the circumstances surrounding the arrest of John the Baptist. But uh, the arrest was a spiritual attack. It, it was a, a strategy, if you will, that was employed by the enemy of God, the enemy of God being the, the devil, being Satan, to, to stop the progress of God's gospel, uh, a, a strategy that was intended to, to stunt the expansion of the kingdom of God. But it was an attack that was used by God to continue to move forward his cosmic plan of redemption. And, and pay attention to how Mark, again, in his immediate style, documents the whole ordeal. He, he simply says... Now, after John was put in prison, 
It's such a casual way to put it. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. There's no drama in the way in which Mark writes this. There's no suspense. There's no question as to whether or not God's plan from eternity past was going to be side-railed or not. It's as if Mark is, is saying, after John was arrested, the gospel continued to go forth. It's kind of the way in which this text reads here. Right? Even knocking out someone as critical uh, as, as John the Baptist, it didn't hinder gospel advancement in any way, in any stretch of the imagination. And, and in this, we should see that, that God graciously, he invites us into his plan for the nations, and it's our joy to serve in that, but his cosmic plan of redemption, it doesn't rise and fall on the shoulders of any of his creatures. Not ultimately. Not ultimately. So, for the Roman Christians that were being persecuted by Nero, for our brothers and sisters throughout church history, and throughout the world even presently suffering for the cause of the gospel, this could be seen as encouraging. It could be seen as encouraging. Think for a moment about the martyrdom of Christ's disciples. And ask yourself the question, did it hinder gospel work? Did it hinder gospel work? Them being martyred? No, it didn't. Right? If we were to survey history up until the present, and we were to trace the constant attacks that the enemy would use to attempt to stifle the, the advancement of the kingdom of God, we would find time and time again that our sovereign triune God flips those attacks on their heads and he uses those very attacks to reinvigorate, to, to energize, to, to purify, to bring attention to the light of the gospel. Right? The, the light shines brighter in the darkness anyways, right? John's brighter in the darkness. It's more visible. In fact, it, it's more desirable only because it's more visible and it's more attractive because the light, it represents beauty. It represents life. It represents safety in this sort of fledgling society that's plagued in their darkness by ugliness and decay. And so what should we do with this? And we should be, as Christians, we should be encouraged we should be encouraged and we should be strengthened in our resolve to persevere in the ministries, the various ministries and vocations that God has called us to despite all obstacles. We shouldn't despair, right? And we come back to this thing quite often, but we shouldn't despair at what we see in society at all. We shouldn't fear what we see in society at all. We should lament what we see in society. We should grieve what we see in society, but we shouldn't despair and we shouldn't fear. Right? Our, our, our laments, our very grief at, at just the, the bankrupt of morality everywhere, it seems, it should be tapered by the reality that the gospel of God really is unstoppable. Right? In our lament and in our grief, right? those very things the scriptures give voice to, right? You can read the Psalms and see how the Psalms give voice to grief, give voice to lament. But it doesn't stop in and of itself. It's, it's, it's directed toward the Lord. 
right? It's worship unto the Lord, knowing that God holds all of this stuff together. So as Christians, as we consider for a moment that the gospel of God's unstoppable and we see that and what's happening in the arrest of John that propels the preaching ministry of Christ, it should motivate us to persevere. It should motivate us not to despair. It should motivate us not to fear. Furthermore, I think it should motivate us to invest in the kingdom of God for the long haul. We should invest with the long view in mind. And, and here's what that can mean for us. We, we should see adversity. Okay, we should see adversity. And let's say what we, what we experience here in the West, let's just say that that adversity is here for the next 100 years, what we're experiencing here in the West the, the, the stuff that really hasn't faced America to the extent that it faces it now. Let's just say, let's just say that, that that's here for the next 100 years. And, and let's say at the 50-year mark, America's gone, right, in the midst of all this, this the, the chaos of our culture, the chaos of our society, right? We, we take these freedoms that we've enjoyed for a long time, as we've been doing, we ball them up, and we've thrown them into the the trash, okay? And let's say in 50 years, in this 100 years of just persecution, adversity, whatever we want to call it, unlike anything we've ever seen in American history, say at the 15-year mark, there's no more America. Let's say that happens. In God's economy, that's what we call, not even what we'd call, a minor setback. Even what we perceive Okay, as, as going backwards from our vantage point in God's plan of redemption is still in God's economy, him moving forward, his plan, his good plan that won't be thwarted by any man, any creature. It's still him moving forward, his plan of redemption. Him moving us forward to the day in which every knee will bow Right? Not some knees will bow, but every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 to 11. All right, we need to see ourselves not isolated at this moment in history, which we tend to think of ourselves that, that way. But we need to see ourselves, God's church, connected to the grander and larger church universal. And, and, and for now... We're the ones that carry, obediently carry, the torch, of, the torch of gospel advancement. No matter what our circumstances are, no matter what we see in society, knowing that in God's timing and in His way, we will then pass our torch, again, with the long view in mind, we're going to pass our torch along to our children, to our grandchildren, to our great-grandchildren, in which they will experience adversity as well. And they will need to persevere and have the long haul in mind. And so, so in light of God's gospel being unstoppable, we don't want to fear. We don't want to despair. Right? We want to see that, that it doesn't rise, that we're called, and it's our joy to enter into advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yet at the same time, it's not dependent on us solely. God's the one that is the motivator of hearts. He's the turner of hearts. He's the one that by his spirit spreads the gospel as the church goes forward into the nooks and crannies of earth. And then we should be investing in the long haul, building things in light of the gospel of God 
being unstoppable, no matter the darkness that we see in society, no matter the darkness that we see in our very own country. So we keep moving forward. I've said this before. We're, we're, not, we're not on the losing team. Right? No, nobody wants to be on the losing team. Right? I, parents at, at sports events with their children, they tell their children that you know, it's not about winning, it's just about having fun, and that's not true. Right? <laughs> you like to win when you're playing. You, you want to win the game. You're there to win the game. Right? No one wants to be on the losing team. Right? Yet we tend to have this sort of posture as Christians, this sort of defeatist mentality as in our comings and goings of life, when in reality that's not true at all. That's not true at all. We, we haven't been invited to participate on some losing team. The gospel of God is going forth. It is, in fact, conquering God's enemies, that Christ, Christ's enemies are being made his footstool. Right? Again, we revisit this, but we, we, I think the scripture is, is pervasive with this stuff. Uh, and, and I think it's pervasive with this stuff because we so often tend to forget it and to act contrary or live contrary to it. And so the gospel of God is unstoppable. So have hope in that. Secondly, God works his will according to a sovereign timetable. Right? And there, there are two things in our text that demonstrate this. Go back again for a moment to, to John's imprisonment. And, and, and the second thing, which I'll get to in a minute, is even just the phrase, the time is fulfilled. So we have John's imprisonment that I think speaks to God working, according, working his will according to a sovereign timetable. And then the preaching ministry of Christ launching with the time is fulfilled. We see that, the very words of Jesus there. But that phrase, as we consider for a moment John's imprisonment, there's a phrase there that, that is, it says put in, he's put in prison. That's how the NKJV translates the Greek word that Mark uses. I'm not sure what your particular translations say there, but it literally means in the Greek handing over is what it means, handing over. Right? And handing over is, is a phrase that, that Mark repeats in his gospel that not only denotes the, the suffering of God's faithful people, but it also speaks to in, 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 in God's providential guiding of the events of that suffering. Right, we even see that phrase used in connection to Jesus being handed over to suffer for the purpose of glorifying God and being handed over for the purpose of redeeming God's people. Right? We see it used in connection uh, of, again, of Christians as well being so, uh, divinely handed over for the sake of exalting Christ and exalting the gospel. Just a couple of passages where Mark uses this exact same Greek word that's translated handing over. It's also translated as, to, as deliver you up. But Mark chapter 9 verse 31 for he taught his disciples and said to them, the son of man is being betrayed. Okay, that being betrayed here can be translated as handed over. It's the same exact Greek word here. Although the word betrayed, I think, even captures well the, the evil intentions of man, right? Judas, the traitor, betraying Christ. But the son of man is being betrayed, being handed over into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he'll rise on the third day. Mark 9 31. And, and then as it relates to the suffering of believers, we see that same, again, Greek word used, but translated into the NKJV as deliver you up, Mark 13, verses 9 to 11. But watch out for yourselves, for they, speaking of the enemies of God, will deliver you up 
to councils and you'll be beaten in the synagogues. You'll be brought before rulers and kings for my sake for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and here it is again, deliver you up, don't worry beforehand Don't premeditate what you will speak, but whatever is given to you in that hour, speak that, for it's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Mark 13, 9 to 11. And this word here, it it captures for us human responsibility and the reality that God will hold the actions of man accountable according to his own good, holy, unchangeable character. But the word for us also captures the even truer reality that nothing is outside of God's sovereign control. John the Baptist was handed over to prison. And again, this served to further advance the long-awaited-for good news, the Messiah finally coming, Jesus finally coming. The the handing over of Christians, it did the exact same thing. Instead of smothering out the message of the gospel, the Christian martyrs speak louder than when they were alive. Tertullian, right, is famous for saying the blood of the martyrs is what? The seed of the church. It's the seed of the church. We see the handing over of Jesus as well. His handing over was our salvation. It was our salvation. Yes, Judas betrayed him, and Judas was held accountable for that. Right? Judas truly was a traitor. He's responsible for that. But according to the prophet Isaiah, the Lord used Jesus being handed over because behind it, behind all of it, was God's plan to acquire salvation for Christ's seed. Isaiah 53.10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. To bruise who? Christ. To bruise Christ. He has put him, who? Christ, to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Right? And so we see, we trace God's sovereign plan, his sovereign timetable to advance his, his good redemptive purposes in that phrase, put in prison, which is translated elsewhere in the Gospel of Mark as handed over or delivered up or betrayed. We see that with John the Baptist. We see that with the early church. And we see that ultimately should be encouraged by in Christ. And we should see the, the practical application here by the sheer fact that we're the benefactors sitting here now as Deer Park Fellowship. We're the benefactors of, of those who have been handed over. We, we have received the benefits of their obedience in the midst of them being handed over and what God did salvifically in light of this div- divine, if you will, handing over. Right? The handing over has only served ultimately to propagate the gospel of God. But what else do we note? What else should we note here? And we should consider and truly internalize that absolutely nothing is outside of the jurisdiction of God's sovereign, good, steady, capable hands. Nothing's outside of his jurisdiction. Nothing. 
Now, the, the lordship of Christ, it extends to all three sovereign spheres that he has established. Christ is the Lord of the home, sphere one. Christ is the Lord of his church, sphere two. All right? Christ is Lord over the civil government. And, and there isn't any amount of disobedience that can change that. It's not our profession that makes Jesus Lord. Okay, it's not our profession that somehow magically makes Jesus Lord. Jesus is Lord whether or not we profess it, whether or not we acknowledge it. That's a fixed, unchanging reality. What we're invited into, what every sphere is invited into, is to confess the reality. Right? Jesus is Lord. We're not making him Lord. We're not electing him as Lord as if we're taking some vote about it. Right? Jesus is Lord. He's the Lord. That's it. Over everything. He's the Lord. If you remember last week, I mentioned Matthew's account of the inauguration of Christ's preaching ministry. We kind of read Matthew's account, and I won't do that here for the sake of time, but in Mark, we see, in verse 15, we see that phrase, the time is fulfilled, which I, I think even helps to capture just God working his sovereign will on his, sovereign, on his own timetable even more. It kind of puts it in high definition, if you will, for us. But that phrase, the time is fulfilled, if we were to, again, harmonize this with Matthew's gospel again, that phrase behind it has the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9, the first two verses, but it's not just Isaiah. I think we could look at the prophecy of Isaiah and it's being utilized in the gospel of, of Matthew is, is a summary of how all of the Old Testament marches forward toward the New Testament, toward the New Covenant. And the time is fulfilled in the movement of the Old Testament. It's not about the progression of time, right? Time just happened to pass. That's, that's not what that's about. It's about uh, the, the time is fulfilled is, is more so capturing that the, that the events that we see transpiring in the gospel of Mark, it was the critical and opportune time. This was God's sovereign plan for it to happen at that particular time in that particular way from eternity past. And just a few passages in the, in the New Testament, I think, even help us to see this, again, as it relates to God's sovereign timetable. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 5, but when the fullness of time had come, so we see that expression again there. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. And we see in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10 that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he, the Lord, might gather together one in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him, in Christ. And then we see First Timothy chapter 2, verses 4 to 6, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, and get the last part here, to be testified in due time, to be preached about in due time. So our triune God, in, in eternity past, decided when the fullness of time would be. And our, our God's not reacting based on unforeseen circumstances. He's not caught off guard 
by how history unfolds. Right? He's the Lord over history, and he's orchestrating all things according to the counsel of his own will, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. Right? Christ came, and he was testified about in due time. Our sovereign God has gathered in Christ all things, will gather ultimately all things in Christ in due time. Christ in the fullness of time came, and he redeemed us sinners from the curse of the law, because we could never uphold the law. We could never earn our salvation. Christ is the one that earned our salvation for us. So this is God's sovereign timetable, and it's glorious, and we should rest in it. We should rest in him in light of it. Third, Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. If you're taking notes, kids, Jesus preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God is Jesus coming and testifying about himself. Jesus, he wasn't wasn't crucified because he was a great guy. He he wasn't crucified because he went around healing everybody. He was crucified because he claimed to be the Messiah. He was crucified because he claimed to be God. That's That's what his preaching ministry was all about. That he is, that Christ is God with us, Emmanuel. One commentator says this, the fact that early Christians referred to both the message of Jesus and the message about Jesus with the word gospel and bequeathed a third sense to the term by designating the written accounts of Jesus' life as, quote, gospels, capital G, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, indicates how inseparably these various understandings are present in this one term. You can't have the gospel, you can't have good news apart from Jesus Christ. And Jesus isn't who we fashion him to be. Right? Christ, he's not, he's not our homeboy. Right? He, he's not some hippie. He's not someone to, that, we, that we can manipulate to excuse the, the, our own sinful behaviors the way that we see his, his holy name and his holy person manipulated in society at large. Right? Christ is Lord. He's Lord. And the way to him, the, the way to have union with him is repentance and belief. It's repentance and belief, repentance and faith. In fact, that's the message that he's heralding in our very text this morning, repentance and faith. Jesus says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. I think it's me. Sorry about that. That was his message. That, that's the path toward him. Repentance and belief, which is point four. We repent and believe in light of God's kingdom. All right, Christ came. Let me tighten. Let me see if this is loose real quick. Sorry. If you were beginning to drift off, you're now awake. I think we can go 40 more minutes now. Um, right. We repent and believe in light of God's kingdom. All right, Christ came. Right? And, and when Christ came, Christ brought his kingdom with him. And, and we repent and believe in light of the kingdom that he brought. And repent and believe, the, these verbs here in this text, they are present imperatives. They're present imperatives. That, mean that, that means that they're a living condition. This is something that we continually do. These aren't just initial acts, if you will, at the moment of your conversion. Right? This, this means that 
that repentance and belief lay claim to the total allegiance of people that would identify as being Christ followers, people that would identify as being Christians, as believers. Right? The, the divine blessing from God is, is, is found in the announcement that, of Christ saying the kingdom of God is at hand and the mystery, if you will, of human responsibility is found in the command that's given to all of us to repent of our sins and believe in the gospel. Now, that word repentance, it isn't just simply changing your mind as if that's something that you can do in your own strength. Right? Repentance is something that regenerate hearts do. And more than just changing your mind, it's, it's, it's comprehensive. It's comprehensive. It, 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 it is whole, a Holy Spirit-fueled turning back to God. It's a body and soul turning, a whole person turning. And Jesus sheds further light on what repentance means later in Mark, and we'll visit that in, in several weeks. But Mark chapter 9, verses 47 and 48, Jesus says, And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire where, quote, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, which is Christ quoting Isaiah chapter 66, verse 24. These are the terms by which we come to Christ, and we don't have any authority to modify it. These are the terms by which we come to Christ. Our holy God is uncompromising in how we come. Right? According to Christ, we are to be severed from sin. We're to be severed from sin. We're to see sin as the destroyer of everything good, everything beautiful, everything glorious. Sin is, if you will, the tumor that's growing on everything that God has created, and it's not benign. It's not benign. It has to be treated ruthlessly, not severing it as a path, according to Christ, a path to everlasting hell. Right? This captures the meaning of repentance better for us. So we repent. And in doing so, as we repent, we believe. Repenting and believing, they have a symbiotic relationship. Repenting drives our belief, and belief drives our repentance. And Christ says that we are to believe the gospel, which means that we're to believe him. And not kids to believe him like we believe in Santa or we believe in fairies, but the word believe here it has the idea of entrusting ourselves to Christ Jesus, to give our person over. The verb form of belief here, it occurs 241 times in the New Testament. As we repent, we, we sever these spiritual tumors growing on us and growing in us that, that make the good things God has made into perverse and twisted, enslaving idols. And we turn instead in belief, entrusting ourselves to Christ. And we do this in light of him coming. And again, of him bringing his kingdom with him, a kingdom made certain, not just by his incarnation and crucifixion and burial, but a kingdom that's made certain by his bodily and eternal resurrection, a kingdom being realized day by day, a kingdom that will be realized in full at his glory return, his second advent. So as we see, we're to forsake sin, we're to sever sin, we're to repent of sin. 
and we turn to Christ, our glorious Savior, we turn to Him and we do this in belief. We do this on His terms. And as we do this, we embrace a good, glorious, resurrection-empowered kingdom life. Psalm 32, 1. Blessed is he whose transgression, happy, again, some translations translate it. Blessed or happy is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. So we're reminded this morning in Mark 1, these verses 14 and 15, we're reminded that the gospel of God is unstoppable. We're reminded that God works his will according to a sovereign timetable. We're reminded that Jesus is the gospel. And we're reminded of that we're to repent and believe for our entire lives in light of the kingdom of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you again for your word. Thank you for allowing us to spend time in it. And God, I pray that you would use it to build us up in you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This is the time we come to the Lord's table. And if you're a guest with us, we don't require membership for you to be able to come to the table. What we ask is that you're a baptized believer that is actively repenting of sin.